You can open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31, or it'll be up on the screen for you. Um, Our scripture reading for tonight comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Hear the word of our Lord. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, We are continuing our series in the book of Mark, uh, looking at the person and person of Jesus. And tonight we're looking at a story that if you've been around church much at all, it's probably really familiar to you, Um, typically referred to as the rich young ruler. Uh, Last week, Brad looked at the end of Mark chapter 9, and he'll be looking at the first part of chapter 10 next week. Um, And last week, Brad looked at how we're called to celebrate Uh, when Jesus uses anyone for his purposes, to push back the darkness in our world and to see his kingdom more fully realized. And in this week, in our passage, Jesus um, has this young man who comes to him and sincerely asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But as we'll see, as we already read, Jesus doesn't directly answer the man's question right on its face. Um, And some of us, when we read this, we're really puzzled and discouraged by Jesus. You know, this guy's sincere, Jesus. Why don't you just tell him? Um, But as we'll see, Jesus tries to go after this man's heart. um, And that's really where we're headed this evening. So as we come to Mark chapter 10 this evening, where is your heart in relationship to Jesus? What do you really love and desire most? Please pray with me and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness to us. We thank you that your word is true, that we can trust it, um, that you've given it to us to reveal yourself to us, to show us your love and kindness to us. We pray that um, as this man came to you, that we would come and we would ask the same question. And uh, in response, though, um, 
we wouldn't go away sad, that we would see our need of you, that we would see our inability to be good, and we would throw ourselves at your feet and trust you and your goodness and Jesus' life and death and resurrection on our behalf, that we might be known and loved by you. It's in Christ's name we come this evening. Amen. Well, in uh, the 1979 film, um, Stalker, uh, it's a Russian film that tells the story of these three men who are on a journey. Um, their names are Professor, Writer, and their guide, Stalker. And Stalker's leading these three men uh, to the zone, and specifically to the room within the zone. Uh, the room, he's told them, it has these, these miracul- it's this miraculous phenomenon where when you enter into it, you're granted your deepest desires, in the room, you get exactly what you want. Well, when they finally get there to the room, when they reach the place where they think their most cherished desires can really come true, they hesitate. It dawns on them that what if they don't really know what it is that they want? Because the room really does reveal all. What you get is not what you think you want, but what your heart desires most, what you most deeply wish for. And so they're just confronted with this disturbing reality that maybe they don't think they want what they think they do. And what if the desires of their hearts, what if their deepest longings are not the ones that they've chosen? One person writing about the movie comments and says this, not many people can confront the truth about themselves. I think you and I this evening can really identify with that. Um, If I were to ask you, if you're a Christian, Um, what do you really want? What do you really long for? Um, What do you ultimately love? You would know what the answer is supposed to be, but is that really the deepest desires of your heart? And if you're not a follower of Jesus at evening, what is it that you really love? What is it it that you cherish and desire most? Um, Would you feel confident stepping into the room this evening? Uh, The insight that the room gives us is that Um, our deepest desires are really shown, not just in what we think we want um, when we're daydreaming, but really in in our daily lives, in our habits, in the way that we live our lives. Um, And that really brings us to our text this evening. Uh, The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he's asking for what he thinks he really wants. He's asking for eternal life, which is a good thing, but Jesus, through a gracious and generous conversation, reveals this man's true love, his deepest desires, and they don't line up with Jesus. They don't line up with his kingdom purposes. So this evening, I want to ask you again, what is it that you love? What is it that you really, really want? We're going to ask three questions of our text this evening to to help us look deeper into our hearts and see how we're to engage with the world around us. So first, what do we learn about Jesus? Or sorry, what do we learn about goodness? Um, Second, what do we learn about ourselves? And third, what do we learn from Jesus? So first, what do we learn about goodness in Mark chapter 10? Um, You know, first we ask, well, who is this ruler? You know, who is he? Matthew, uh, his gospel tells us that he's young, and Luke tells us that he's a ruler, and we later find out that this man's pretty wealthy, so hence the title, the rich young ruler. The word that that Luke uses for ruler there um, indicates that he's a leader, or he's a ruler in the local synagogue. So he's a a church worker. Um, He's an upright. He's a decent young man. He's the kind of guy that you would just really want to be friends with. 
uh, that you would be excited to have as your brother or your son, um, that you'd be excited to go to work with or to have your daughters or your sisters um, date and marry. This is just an overall just really, really good guy. And in verse 17, he runs to Jesus. He falls on his knees before him, and he sincerely asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he often does, responds with a question of his own. He's, Jesus is trying to understand who this is that he's actually talking to. And he's wanting this man to be a little bit more introspective to get him to understand his own heart. And Jesus replies, why do you call me good? And then he goes on to explain why he asked this question. No one is good except God alone, Jesus says. Um, the ruler isn't trying to flatter Jesus. He respects him and he values him and what he has to say. You know, he, he ran to him. He's, he's showing great humility and falling on his knees before him. And so Jesus is implicitly asking the question, what does it mean if you call me good? If only God is good and you're calling me good, what does that mean? But also, what does it just mean to call someone good in general? If someone called us good, you and me, um, we would gladly take that as a compliment, and we would just really enjoy the affirmation that they're giving us. But Jewish people at this time only referred to God in this way, and they never spoke that way of one another. And so Jesus is pressing this young man, and he's pressing us this evening to think about, okay, what is true goodness? And then Jesus goes further. And he summarizes the second half of the Ten Commandments, the part about loving your neighbor, where the first part is about loving God. He says, you know, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not lie, don't defraud, honor your parents. Jesus is trying to get this young man and us to think about our goodness. He's trying to get the young man to think about his goodness in comparison with God's goodness. He's attempting to help him think about his failure to keep the commandments. He might be a decent young man, but he's not as good as God is. And the man replies in verse 21, all these I've kept from my youth. He's basically saying, I'm good. I've done that. I've kept those laws. What else? I've got those down. What else you got for me, Jesus? This young man is not aware of the distance between his goodness and God's goodness. He's not aware that he doesn't really get the law at all, even though he's a leader in the synagogue. This young man thinks his goodness has been enough to get him in good with God. And if we're honest, this is how many of us actually often live and what we think Christianity and Jesus uh, how it works. You know, if we think it works this way, if, if we're good, um, if we do our best to not make, to not break the major commandments, thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as those people over there. Um, then we're good with God. Then he has to let us in because, you know, look at how good we are. And after all, we've been really, really sincere in our efforts. Um, it's our tendency to make Christianity boil down to this following this list of rules, this do's and don'ts of, of, of doing certain things and not doing other things so that we really can look good and so that we can look like we have it all together um, on the outside with very little concern over what our hearts look like on the inside. And for those outside of the church, this is exactly what many think Christianity and Jesus are all about. It's about doing more good than it's about doing bad. It's not about the externals, Jesus is saying here to us this evening. The law, Jesus himself, 
are after our hearts. Not about what we're projecting on the outside, not about looking good on the inside. Goodness is about purity of your heart. So the law isn't just about murdering. It's not about hating people. It's about not talking ill or thinking ill of them. It's about loving them. Adultery isn't just about um, not having sex outside of marriage. It's about not lusting after someone in your own eyes and heart, not objectifying them. It's about loving them. Theft isn't just about taking something that doesn't belong to you. It's about not coveting anything that isn't yours. Someone's house, their car, their job, their vacations, their salary, their grades, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, their spouse, whatever it is. Bearing false witness isn't just about not lying in court. It's about not telling, it's about telling the truth all of the time and in love. Honoring your parents is about treating them with respect even if they don't deserve it. And it's loving and caring for them and serving and supporting them. So what would you have said this evening if Jesus asked you this question that he asked the rich young ruler? The reality is, not me, not you, none of us in this room can say that we've obeyed the full measure of the law of God. Goodness goes much, much deeper. It's about being completely pure in action, about being completely pure in your heart, and only God is good in this way. This man's limited understanding of who God is and what goodness really means is is keeping this man from a right relationship with God. This man doesn't see his true state. He doesn't see that he's broken, that he's in desperate need of forgiveness and a new heart. Uh, His biggest problem is that he's broken the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. His biggest problem is misplaced worship and idolatry. He misses the point about how good God is and how, and how not good he is. And he replies, no, I'm, I'm good. So this is evening. If Jesus asked you this question, how would you reply? Would you reply like the rich young ruler? Yeah, I've done all that. You know, I, I, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. Um, I'm not a liar. I don't sleep around. I don't cheat on my taxes. I have the catechisms memorized. I'm in church every time the doors are open. I study my Bible and I pray a lot. Or would you reply, wow, you know, I, I've realized that the law goes much, much deeper than I ever imagined. And not a day, not a minute goes by where I keep it at all. Do we see our poverty of goodness when compared with the beauty and the purity of Jesus and our God and his commands, or do we think we're good too? So the second question we ask ourselves is, is what do we learn about ourselves here? Um, After the young man replies, teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy, Jesus doesn't reply to this man, have you read your Old Testament? Um, there's no one who is good, young man. In fact, your righteous acts are like filthy rags before me. Have you been listening to my teaching at all? You're a sinner. Um, You need to repent. You, in fact, are not good. You need forgiveness. Now, all of this is true, but Jesus doesn't go at this man directly in that way. He doesn't grab him by his robes and shake him for his pride and his arrogance and his bad theology. He doesn't jump to calling this man um, out on his sin and his idolatry, exposing him and publicly shaming him. Jesus doesn't think that the louder you shout about sin, the more direct you are, the more pointed you are, the more convicted that person is going to be. 
He doesn't use the Bible as a weapon against this man. Jesus knows that no one has ever been shamed into following him. And Jesus knows that, that shame and criticism, which aim to, to tear down and to harm, they don't work as good motivators to get people to enter into a gospel relationship with Jesus. Jesus is more gentle in his approach, and he tries to get the young man to see his heart and to understand it. And verse 21 tells us exactly what Jesus does. He looked at him and loved him. He loved him. Do you know who the hardest people for me to love are? Um, people who don't see their need and are proud and arrogant and look down on people around them and who think they're better than everyone else. But Jesus convicts me here and corrects me here. You know, what does Jesus do with this man who thinks he's good, who's proud, who's arrogant, who thinks he's perfectly kept God's law? He loves him. He's not repulsed. He's not harsh. He doesn't dismiss him. He doesn't, he doesn't dismiss him as beyond hope. I'm done with you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. He doesn't say you're not worth my time. He loves him. And when we come to Jesus, when we see our need and we approach him as a little child recognizing our brokenness and our inability to achieve God's love, he welcomes us and he fills us with his spirit and that should lead us who are following Jesus to mirror the way that Jesus treats people, even proud and arrogant and selfish people. And then Jesus continues in verse 21, one thing you still lack, go. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the man heard these things, his face fell. He became very sad because he had great wealth. Now what we, we need to say here is that Jesus is not saying if you are wealthy, um, then, and then the way that you get into heaven, the way that you get God to love you is by giving all your money to the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Um, Jesus has, is, has not gotten the young man to see his brokenness yet and his need for grace. And so he's trying a different approach. He doesn't explicitly say, you know, have you read the first commandment? You got the other, the back, the, the back part down, but you don't have the first one down. You shall have no other gods before me. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at and challenging the man on his wealth. That's the thing that's standing between him and God. You think you're good, he's saying. Where is your heart? What do you truly love? What do you worship? What guides and directs your choices? Is it the Lord or is it money? Is it something else? What do you live for? Who do you love? Um, one of my favorite movies is, you, I, I know I've told this before, but one of my favorite movies is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, and there's this awesome scene at the end of the movie where Ferris and his best friend Cameron and, and Ferris's girlfriend, they've spent the whole day ditching school um, and they've been going around Chicago and Cameron's dad's uh, uh, classic 61 Ferrari Spider. They get home and they're trying to get the, we, the, the miles off of the car to show Cameron's dad that they didn't actually go out. Um, so they have it jacked up um, on this jack and they have the car running in reverse and it's not working. And Cameron 
has this kind of moment of anger and clarity where he's fed up with his relationship with his father and his dad's love affair with this car at the expense of his relationship with him and his relationship with his family. And he starts stomping on the bumper and he's shouting, who do you love? Who do you love? You love a car. And the jack you see, like it starts to buckle and like finally Cameron kicks it one too many times. The car drops falls in reverse and shoots out the back window and they're like on this high rise and the car is destroyed in the woods. So the question for us is who do you love? Jesus is trying to show this man, you do not only not love your neighbor well, you don't love God with your whole heart, with your whole strength, with your whole mind. And if we're honest this evening, the same is true for us. What do you really want? Where are you storing up treasures? Is it in earth and earthly things or is it in heaven? Are my choices driven by love for God or trying to get more stuff or trying to be more comfortable or more safe or secure or happy or fulfilled? The reality is we all worship something. We all put something in the place of God and the Bible calls that idolatry. Augustine defies it this way. He says this, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshiped. That's exactly what the young man in our passage is doing. He's worshiping his wealth and he's trying to use God to get eternal life. Where do we do that? Calvin says that our hearts are idol factories, that they're constantly looking for and manufacturing something other than God to worship. So the question for us is, how can you tell if something really is an idol for you? Well, one kind of rubric to operate under is what uh, is something, um, when it happens, it makes you really upset, really angry, really afraid, or really sad? Um, what are you willing to fight for um, if it's threatened? You know, does the thought of having something taken away from you um, make you want to hold on to it and grasp onto it all the more tightly? You know, for some of us, it's our kids, it's our jobs, it's our grades, it's our status uh, with a certain group of people or in a certain industry, it's a relationship, it's our pleasure, it's our comfort, it's our convenience, our political views or our cultural views, our theology even, our power and authority, our control, our reputation, our rights. Um, remember, idols usually are not bad things. They're in and of themselves. They're, they're often really good things that we've turned into, as Keller says, ultimate things. Things we have to have in order to feel safe, in order to feel enough, in order to feel good or loved or significant or whole. You know, for many of us, uh, our hearts are filled with idols that are keeping us from following God wholly and wholeheartedly, and we need Jesus to step in and open our eyes to them and have them ripped away and destroyed for us. Cameron, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, shows us in order for him to have a right relationship with his father, this idol of this car has to be destroyed. Now, God is not the one with the, with the idol. We are. So if we are truly going to love and honor and serve and follow after our God, our idols have to be destroyed. One person says it this way. They say, until your idols are destroyed, there is no room for Jesus in your heart. So we see 
without Jesus, we are all lost and capable of following the law perfectly, primarily because we place our importance, our value, our hope, our significance, our worth, our ultimate identities on something other than God. We are all in need of grace and forgiveness. So what do we learn from Jesus in this passage? The first thing we learn from Jesus in this passage and dealing especially with broken people around us, uh, especially those that think they're good um, and they're, they're proud and arrogant about it, is that Jesus earns the right to ask challenging and penetrating questions. The moral beauty of Jesus' life and his reputation, they drive this man to come throw himself at Jesus' feet with respect and with a willingness to learn. And Jesus doesn't betray that reputation. He's gentle, he's humble, he's gracious, and he loves this man and he's entering into his life. He loves him. He doesn't scold him. Young man, you should know better. This is really how awful you are, and you need to know that. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't bully him with the truth. We can't just jump up and down on people and shout loudly at them that you're a sinner to your very core, and you need to repent, even though those things are true, without first having their love and their respect. We have to earn the right to offer affirming critiques which are motivated by restoring and building up without being critical, without being cynical, without taking the judgment seat which is not ours to take. We have to love people the way that Jesus loves us, the way that he loves them. Only then will family members or neighbors or coworkers or friends when they know that they're loved, that they're valued and they're safe with us, only then will they come to us with their questions. And then we have to be careful to ask really good questions back. We also see that Jesus tries to get people to see the beauty and the character of God here. When we see God for who he really is, we're, that we're more likely to see that we drastically fall short, like Isaiah in, in, in the book of Isaiah Um, When he sees God's glory, he falls on his face and he says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. You know, showing God's beauty and his goodness and the ugliness of sin is more effective than launching accusations and condemning people for being sinners. Conviction has to arise from within that person only with the aid of the Holy Spirit. We're not the ones that are responsible for convicting someone's heart. We don't get to be the Holy Spirit for other people. And then in verse 27, Jesus says, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. We need God to help us see his beauty and our brokenness. We're not ever going to be able to do it on our own. This is what Jesus says. It's impossible for you. If you try to do it on your own, it's impossible but it is not impossible with God. In fact, the impossible is possible with him. So part of our calling and engaging the world around us that's filled with broken people is to demonstrate this beauty and this grace of following Jesus, reflecting his holiness, reflecting his love, reflecting his grace and patience, his words, his demeanor, his love. And then we also see that there's no lost causes 
We don't get to write anyone off as beyond hope, especially the proud and the arrogant, because Jesus doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit can and has and does work in the most broken of lives and circumstances, and I don't have to give you any more evidence because we're in this room together. That is what he has done for you and for me in his grace, and we also must learn from Jesus that he's concerned about the hearts of those around him Yes, he desires that we love God and our neighbor. That is his utmost desire for us, but he wants us to love and to serve him because we love him. Jesus isn't dismissive of this man because of his bad theology or because of his self-righteousness and arrogance, but Jesus' words about it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, it stings. And the reason it stings the disciples, the reason it stings us is because our idols get in the way of following Jesus. It might be wealth, it might be something else. But that's ultimately what Jesus says to this man, give your money to the poor and come and follow me. Get rid of the things that are keeping you from me and come after me. Stop using the things that are you're intended to worship and stop worshiping things that are you're intended to use, like Augustine says. You know, do we really believe that only God can set us free from our idols or do we try to manage them ourselves? Or even worse, do we try to manage them for those around us? Jesus begins to set us free from our idols by helping us see into our own hearts. He cares for this young man. He wants to get to know him. He's deeply invested in him. He's deeply interested in him, and he's willing to count the cost of what it will mean for this young man to open his heart to him. And if we're to love and we're to engage with the brokenness of the world around us, we must be willing to do the same thing what we see is that Jesus here is ready to give his life for this young man. He's ready to give his life for you and me 2,000 years later um, when he went to the cross where he became our sin, where he took on every single one of our idols that our idol factory hearts produce day in and day out and he took them on himself and he died for them, and then he gives us his righteousness, he gives us his goodness, he gives us his perfection, he gives us his status as dearly loved children, as we read earlier in in Ephesians. And all of this, while we were still lost, while we were proud and arrogant, while we were broken, desperate, needy sinners, Jesus gives himself fully to and for those who come to him, and he invites us if we are his, to mirror his love, to mirror his character. We're called to draw near and to not be repelled by broken people, but to love them and to give ourselves away to those who don't know Jesus yet, whose lives are messy and sinful and proud and arrogant because that's exactly what Jesus does for us. So when we come into contact with the Jesus in this passage as he really is, we see that we don't have it all together, that we fail grossly in every part of keeping his law, that we're prone to wander, we're prone to put other things in the place of God, that our hearts are idol factories. Our choices are not often guided by, what does God want for me? But rather, how can I get more of what I want? How can I get more pleasure? How can I get more money? How can I get more of this relationship? Whatever it is. And Jesus loves us. He deals gently with us. 
and he tries to open our hearts up to ourselves so that we can turn to him, so that we can chase after him, so that we can follow him, the one who looks at us with love, the one who speaks to us and approaches us in grace, and the one who, who paid for our brokenness and our idols on the cross so that we can be free to follow and worship and love and serve him and him alone, so that we can truly be the love that, that is at the center of our hearts and our lives, so that he can truly be the love that is at the center of our lives and our hearts and our actions. This evening, is your goodness keeping you from enjoying the freedom and the forgiveness of the gospel. We were made to have God be at the center of our lives and our hearts. Everything else will leave us anxious and restless and hopeless and lost. But Jesus offers life and hope and rest in himself. So what do you love this evening? What do you desire most? Hear this as we close. Jesus loves and desires you most. And the reason we know that is because he died on the cross for you and he rose again and he promised he will return to bring you home with him once and for all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness to us. We thank you um, that you approach us in love and grace, that you are not repelled by us, when we come in our sin and arrogance, but rather you demonstrated your love for us in dying for us. Help us to see our um, poverty of goodness this evening, to turn to you, to, to cast away, to destroy, to break apart uh, the things that are standing in the way of us coming to you. Uh, we need you to do that for us because we won't do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. We need you. We thank you that Jesus has come, that he's died, that he's risen, that he offers hope and life and forgiveness. Help us to cling to him, our true wealth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.